0: At the end of the day, I think the question still remains for me about Milwaukee is do you need as much as you think you need in terms of facility capacity or should there just be less emphasis placed on that and and sort of more about this question of like who, who really even needs to be in a facility period, right? Like we're starting the conversation so much right now around the facility and what that need mm-hmm. is. It sort of misses the point, which is, You have this moment, like, who should be in your system, and why.
1: Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action, and my name is Sam Woods.
2: And I'm Benjamin Rangel, and today we bring you the first episode of a two-part series on what the future of youth justice in Milwaukee might look like. The idea of the episode stemmed from our conversation with County Executive Lee when Sam and I interviewed him and Department of Health and Human Services Director Mary Jo Myers. And the topic of Lincoln Hills, youth justice reform, mm-hmm. were at the center of our discussion.
1: Yeah, we realized immediately after the interview how much we needed to do a bit more digging on the topic of youth justice. So we decided to expand what was originally just an interview with Chris Abley into a thematic series on youth justice reform in Milwaukee. In this first episode, we'll lay the groundwork for what makes right now such a unique moment to change what youth justice looks like in Milwaukee
2: likely for the next couple of decades at least but before we get into our interviews we want to just give a little bit of a background about Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake I'm sure the names are familiar to most of our listeners but I think it's important to get an update on where things currently stayed and a little bit of the history of the institution and the challenges surrounding it
1: so Lincoln Hills School for Boys and Copper Lake School for Girls are secure youth correctional facilities located in Irma Wisconsin which is about three hours northwest of Milwaukee these facilities have housed youth adjudicated as guilty of committing type 1 criminal offenses since the early 1970s.
2: Following years of reports of physical and mental abuse of youth including amputated toes, neglected medical emergencies, and excessive use of solitary confinement, the FBI joined in on an investigation of Lincoln Hills. Soon after, the Wisconsin State Legislature unanimously passed Act 185 in 2017, which among other things orders the conversion of Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake to adult institutions and the relocation of youth to regional facilities around the state by January 2021. The exact location of these facilities has yet to be determined, and if nothing changes, it will likely be determined by the end of the year.
1: But here's why this moment is so important. To an extent, Wisconsin has recognized that the way we have approached youth justice is simply not acceptable, and that changes to the system must be made. What those changes will be, and how Wisconsin handles youth justice in the future, however, are yet to be determined.
2: So in the first half of the episode, we'll talk with Milwaukee County Executive Chris Abeline to Department of Health of Human Services director, Mary Jo Myers, about what reforms the county is pursuing with Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake and some specific policy strategies they are advocating to implement in youth justice, like Project RISE.
1: And for the second half of this episode, we reached out to Vidya Ananta Krishnan from Columbia University's Justice Lab to talk about how New York City handled a very similar situation a little over 10 years ago and how this moment can be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to completely change how we care for our youth if we are willing to do the work.
2: But first, here's County Executive Abley and Health and Human Services Director Mary Jo Myers.
3: My name is Chris Abley. I'm the Milwaukee County Executive. Uh, I first ran for office uh, in 2011 in a special election, actually. Uh, the former county executive was Scott Walker. He had just been elected governor, so there was a special election and I ran, and obviously that worked out. Uh, but uh, as county executive, uh, most people, when I tell them that, follow up by saying, well, what does that mean? What do counties do? And education these days, we don't do a good job often explaining what level of government does what. So relevant here to today's discussion about uh youth in uh, juvenile justice, uh, counties touch an awful lot of aspects of it. So uh, when a few years ago we realized we had an opportunity to do better than Lincoln Hills, uh, we all got pretty excited about it. As most of your listeners probably know, you didn't have to pay too much attention to the news to know that uh, Lincoln Hills, the state-run facility to be clear here, Uh, youth who were sent there by the state's own numbers were recidivating at 70 plus percent. So when you think about the fact that, so we're sending kids four hours away and keeping there far longer than we should, And during which time uh, they're going through a whole lot of experiences, or too many of them are, that are just indefensible. And, oh, what we're doing, we're making it more likely that they're going to recommit another crime. And as if that wasn't enough, we're spending about $150,000 a year per kid to do it. Uh, And just quick, you know, sort of context there, uh, that's about four times more than it would take to provide an incredible education and services, which we know. Uh, have better outcomes. Even if the circumstances that gave us this opportunity aren't ideal, everybody here was resolved to, hey, look, here's a door that we didn't think was going to be open, and now it's open, so let's get it right.
1: You mentioned that Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake are state-run facilities, and as as Act 185 is written currently, type one or secure facilities such as Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake will still be run by the state even if the facility itself is located in your jurisdiction in Milwaukee County. So how have you navigated the overlapping nature of jurisdictions between the state, county, and city levels of government?
3: We work hard to try and partner uh, with uh, every level of government that's going to be impacted by decisions we make, including uh, in Reform at Lincoln Hills. So relevant to uh, this issue, uh, most of the kids, from Milwaukee County that are being referred to any facility like, and certainly like in Hills are coming from the city of Milwaukee. Uh, and the vast majority of research, uh, suggest that among many other things, what's important if you want good outcomes is have uh, you know a facility that is, uh, if you need to put people in a facility, have a facility that is as close yeah. to the community that these kids grew up in, have connections, family, friends, schools, and will need to reintegrate into uh, later uh, because then they're going to be a lot better able to do that than if they're four hours north uh, as they were in Lincoln Hill's. Uh, so, uh, we, uh, Mary Jo reached out to the city, I think at the beginning of November, um, and all the way through the process of, you know, with the mayor's office and everyone else said, okay, uh, here's the kind of locations we're looking at. Here's the sort of numbers of kids we're dealing with. Importantly, here's the distinction between the state facility and our facility. There's two, uh, the state. uh, deals with what's called serious juvenile offenders but functionally it just means uh, folks where the acuity is higher the level of risk is assessed at a higher level the county facility is lower risk uh, and people who in our opinion never should have been going to Lincoln Hill in the first place Uh, but we've talked about here's what we think the facility would look like here's you know, myth versus fact on, uh, no, it's not going to increase crime in the neighborhood and good news. You don't have to take my word for it. Uh, But basically trying to address their concerns. And similarly with the state, hey, you guys are planning a new facility also in Milwaukee. Let's coordinate. Uh, And, uh, you know, we've generally had uh, pretty good communication. And I think there's pretty broad agreement that, okay, you know, the reason the New York program is called Close to Home, that's kind of, you know, in the title, uh, you don't have to read the article. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, but one of the things I tell people is not, it's not just that that program, that transformation was seen as successful, uh, it's why. So New York City went from essentially sending about 3,800 kids to their version of Lincoln Hills, which, believe it or not, was even further north away from the city than Lincoln Hills is from here. To zero and they had local facilities but the real important takeaway for people who think oh this sounds scary uh, is in New York City after they did that in the four years after that program crime went down faster uh, than it had been going down before faster than the rest of the state which didn't do this program so You know, for the sort of tough on crime kind of mentality, look, nobody's wrong to be worried about crime. They're right to be worried. Good news. You don't have to take my word for it. You do this. It lowers the risk of crime. Um, And again, at scale, and there's a lot of data to show it.
4: So I'm Mary Jo Myers. I'm the director for the Department of Health and Human Services under the county exec. I uh, was appointed to this position about a year ago, and um, I was confirmed in the end of May. Prior to that, I spent a good share of my career working in with children's mental health, and a lot of my touch points were with juvenile justice and child welfare. So. A great deal of my career has been spent in doing some of the things that Chris Abley has talked about related to best practice, evidence-informed, trying to look at how we can work with kids in a different way to rewrite futures, make sure that um, they have opportunities. And so when I thought about whether um, I would move into this position, some of the things that I thought about was it's an opportunity because for the Department of Health and Human Services we have a housing division we have a division of youth and family services we have mental health we have disabilities and for years and years and years, um, my dream would be to have a system of care in which people would get the right thing at the right time in the right way. Sure. And so related to juvenile justice reform, we have an opportunity now that was born out of a crisis, but really an opportunity to say, how do we expand our system of care? How do we look at what kids need when? How do we look at what happens before kids even enter the system? So as you probably know, um, the children now that we are responsible for there in Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake are largely um, brown and black children. Um, We need to do a lot of work around the disparities for the children in the city of Milwaukee. And so we really want to take this opportunity to start getting things um, right around how we have kids enter a system, but how do they actually enter the, if they're going to enter, then what do we do to make sure that their time in the system is well spent? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure they get what they need around programming, education? How do we make sure that they can get back to a school system? How do we make sure that their families receive help while they're in our care? And how do we make sure that once they leave our care, they're successful in their adulthood?
2: And so how do you make sure? What are some specific, like, evidence-based practices that you're looking forward to either implementing or already have implemented to address some of the challenges you already brought up?
4: So one of the things we've been looking at a lot is an integrated treatment model, which comes out of Seattle. Uh, Henry Schmidt has been working with us. We've been working with Seattle. We've been working with Closer to Home out of um, New York. We've been working with the Columbia University Justice Lab, Annie Casey. So we're working really hard to see nationally what are best practices. We also have been working locally because we have a lot of resources in Milwaukee that if we connected the dots and connected with our community-based resources who really understand our children. So one of the things we know is that there's a there could be a really great, Um, marriage between collaboration between what we're learning nationally and what we have locally. We know that one of the concerns for the children at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake is that the staff that are working with them don't really uh, look like them, don't understand the city in which they come from, might not understand the families. And so we have an opportunity now if we can get it closer to home, if we can have our system of care more the fabric of the community. So that doesn't just mean where do kids end up. It also means what kind of services can we provide already within their community by partnering with community-based agencies who understand the children, who know uh, what they need, and then marry it with some of the concepts we're learning from on a national level to make sure that we're providing evidence-based treatment to the kids. Alongside with working with our school systems in a different way, making sure that the kids get up to grade level, that they actually have opportunities, whether it be to go back to school and continue their trajectory in school, or do we want to look at vocational opportunities for them. So lots of opportunities here to partner with some great resources that we have in Milwaukee as well.
2: I do want to talk a little bit more about the integrated treatment model. Yeah. Is one component of that model bringing facilities closer to home? Is that part of that treatment model or is there more to that treatment model?
4: Well, the integrative treatment model is really what you would be talking about as to how you train the staff that okay. work in either the secure residential um, facility for residential facilities. So that's the integrated treatment model. Mm-hmm. But there is uh, more to creating better futures for kids that would involve things that we also learned and were reinforced when we did our visit to Washington, D.C., the New Beginnings Program. So I'll explain the integrated tre- treatment model and then I'll also talk about what we need to make sure that the juvenile just re- justice reform continues that we've started back in 2011 already. So the integrated treatment model is what we're looking at and already started utilizing at Bakari House. So right now we have a non-secure residential facility for that could house up to 24 kids that we just opened right at the holidays, right at the end of December. And so we, um, Henry Schmidt uh, came here to help train the staff. That model is one in which you use components, much like MST, multisystemic therapy, where you help the staff understand that children are not living in isolation. Mm-hmm. They have many things that affect them. Their schooling, their community, they're, they're here now, but they're going to be responding to the community in which they return to. So you want to look at their peer group. You want to look at um, their parental group, you want to see who are the loved ones in their life? Who can we surround them with that care about them, believe in them? There's a lot that we know that works with children versus the things that we know that don't work with children. Mm-hmm. So children, um, when you lock them up, they become extremely angry. They see the world is unfair. Um, If you're a child that's already dealt with institutional racism, racism for your life, you already expect people to treat you badly. So your narrative is that someone's going to treat you badly, therefore I will act badly. The integrative treatment model trains staff to change that narrative, to help kids change that narrative. And so what you want is you want every shift that touches a child. So even if it's the night shift and the child wakes up in the middle of the night scared, and it usually gets displayed as anger, um, then that child responds to that staff in a way that's extremely consistent. And so the staff are taught to not react and to understand where the child's behavior is coming from so that they can give the child options, a different way to express their feelings. And what you want to do then is you want every single child or ex- every single adult that interacts with each child to be trained in the same manner and have a consistent approach. We also talk about if we're uh, the integrated treatment model recognizes the trauma of the children that they that the trauma they've experienced, but it also recognizes secondary trauma and says, okay, um, you want a staff of you want one to five because staff at sometimes reach their point of that they're not going to respond appropriately to a a child, which is why we have what we have sometimes in institutional settings where children get, children actually get abused by the staff, because staff reach their boiling point. So what you do is you create an environment in which staff have the ability to go to a room, calm down, have a place to listen to music, whatever it takes, so that the staff can actually remove themselves when they need to if the child continues to escalate, you know, we talk about sometimes uh, our emotions get dysregulated. And so you want the staff to have an approach that helps them regulate their own emotions so that they're not overreacting. Most times when uh, we talk in the a world of crisis, that if a child's having a crisis, it's generally because the adult didn't know what to do or the adult did something that escalated the child. Children and youth are very responsive to the adults that surround them. And so we know if we can change the way the adults that surround them act, then their behavior changes too. And This is
2: all evidence-based.
4: Yes. Mm -hmm. So related to the other um, pieces though, when we talk about building a system of care Mm -hmm. that would promote uh, justice reform is we want to look at what we're missing. What are the missing pieces? So there's a concept called credible messengers in which you um, look within your community for those young adults or adults that have gone through the system themselves and have that lived experience and are also respected by their community. So we've actually had some people come out to our listening sessions that had said said some really powerful things who could be credible messengers Mm -hmm. for us. Um, So that again, you're hiring from your community, you're hiring from the community in which the kids live and come from and the kids respect the adults and the adults in the community respect the adults, hence the name Credible Messengers. And so you're probably very familiar with mentors, you know, Boys and Girls Clubs and such. And so there's, we know already that when um, children have adults who believe in them, if they have one caring adult who's going to carry them through, we probably can all identify for ourselves those adults in our life that made a difference. And so we have an opportunity to do that for the children. In the juvenile justice system which would be part of expanding our options reform we have a lot of good things already um, that we've had for years but now we have an opportunity to build upon that um, you're probably familiar with Around milwaukee you're probably familiar with running rebels there's a number of organizations that we partner with already um, that do things that have a similar type of approach of providing children with different opportunities, whether it be recreational, whether it be helping them get back uh, in their schools, but having someone who cares about that young person who's going to be the role model, who's going to help point it out when they're going in the wrong direction or possibly making a bad choice, is going to be really crucial. So we want to expand our network around those kinds of options so that it doesn't become just about bricks and mortar and more about rewriting the child's future through contacts and through having adults that care about them. Mm -hmm. The other thing we learned a lot about from um, new beginnings in Washington, D.C. was how important it would be for us to make sure that if we are located in the communities in which the children live, the number one thing is to see how you can create avenues for family members, whether it be a parent or not, but any family member that wants to come and visit the child. And if they also want to get involved in our programming, they can. And so um, Washington, D.C. did a really nice job of making sure that families, relatives could also participate in what they were calling achievement centers. So, for example, maybe you're going to work on resume writing and someone in the family mem- family also needs to or wants to, then it's not just the youth that would be doing that. It's also adults that could be working on whatever it is they want to work on to better um, their futures as well.
2: I have one final question. And if you do want to say more about action steps or misconceptions, our podcast is all about action steps, so we, we can say that. But my question would be, how, if at all, uh, the, the youth that have been part of uh, either at Lincoln Hills or Copper Lake, have they been involved at all in terms of the reform? So
4: we've started that years ago when the news first broke about what was happening. Um, we sent a team, Milwaukee County through Regional Milwaukee and through Division of Youth and Family Services, sent a team of people up, and we're still doing that. In fact, um, I just talked to one of the women last Friday who went up to talk to some of the kids Um, so we've been we started a long time ago interviewing also almost doing wellness checks make sure they're doing okay Um, we've also looked at how they can help inform us on programming what do they think we should be doing differently what should we create that we don't already have Um, We've also interviewed the children. So um, sometimes the children will be in detention, unfortunately, before the judge makes a decision as to where they're going to go. So we've had lots of opportunity to talk to the kids in detention, our detention facility at Bell Phillips to get their input on Act 185, which is the legislation to change what we're doing as an alternative to Lincoln Hills. So we've been interviewing the children both up at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake as well as in our own detention facility. Um, One of the models that the county exec was talking about, closer to home, they actually did um, smaller, like, group home-like settings um, scattered throughout the city. So, you know, we've also looked at that as best practice. There's a lot of things moving now, but we just want to get it right. So we're continuing Mm -hmm. to study best practice. We're continuing to stay in dialogue. Um, What's going to be really essential though, at the end of the day, whatever model we land on in terms of moving forward and trying to bring the kids back as soon as possible, want to get it right, we also need to do it in partnership because we do want to make sure that the city is also um, with us on this journey, recognizing that kids do come from the city and we want them to be back near their family and loved ones in the city. So we really need that partnership
1: next we're going to do something that we usually don't do here on bridge the city and that's to shift the focus away from milwaukee and even away from wisconsin to new york city both chris abley and mary Jo myers reference the close to home model a youth justice model used in new york city that prioritizes local therapeutic resources for youth found to need temporary out-of-home placement to support their treatment and transition back into their community to learn more about how close to home came to be and why now is such an important moment for youth justice in Wisconsin. We reached out to Vidya Anantha Krishnan, Director of Youth Justice Projects at Columbia University's Justice Lab.
0: My name is Vidya Anantha Krishnan and I am the director of youth justice initiatives at the Columbia University Justice Lab. The Columbia University Justice Lab is what I like to refer to as like an action-oriented think tank, um, if, if I had to give mm-hmm. it a sort of a, a shorthand mm-hmm. for what it does. But essentially, it's a group that was um, brought over to Columbia by uh, Vinnie Chiraldi and uh, Bruce Western from Harvard. Mm-hmm. So they both were at Harvard uh, running the program in criminal justice there, and at some point decided that they were sort of interested in looking for a new home and and Columbia was a good fit. And when they came to Columbia, a lot of that was centered around this notion of how do we kind of think about ending mass incarceration and really looking at shaping justice for the future. And that was sort of the, the start of having lots of different projects really aimed at that goal. Um, our portfolios include looking at probation and parole and emerging adults, the population of kids who are sort of 18 to 24. And then this work that I do on youth justice. Um, and then separately, there's also some research happening on reentry and solitary confinement and lots of other things on the other side of our shop. So that's kind of a quick overview. So
1: just to zero in on, on close to home, um, can you talk about what, first of all, like kind of what was it and how did it come about?
4: Yeah, um, so close
0: to home is what I would call um, less of a program and more of an uh, entire overhaul of the juvenile justice system in New York City, I do know what it looked like. Um, it was, you know, that's what the name of the legislation was that passed and put that into effect in New York City. But really, it's a story that came about years before and then culminated in close to home. Um, like Wisconsin and Milwaukee, Um, For many years, New York City sort of relied on upstate youth prisons for kids who were found guilty of committing crimes. So, you know, assuming a judge saw that it was necessary for a kid to be placed out of the home, um, that kid would typically be sent to one of the many prisons that were upstate. The closest of them was probably not closer than two to three hours away, and in many cases were like five, six hours away. So we're talking about pretty far distances. Um, And, you know, that was true for a pretty significant period of time, particularly like in the, you know, at the height of the super predator area, I think something like 3,800 kids were in state custody in New York state. And um, and a big proportion of those kids were from New York state. Um, as the sort of wave around that super predator era started to die down and people were like wait what are we doing um like New York like everywhere else around the country started seeing a big drop in crime and um, beginning in the year 2000 and sort of going through that sort of decade um, the number of kids coming into custody was dropping pretty significantly and that was due to a lot of attention that was being paid to you know, how, who are we putting in these places and why? And, you know, there were reforms happening in New York City that were targeting all of this. And basically by 2006 or seven, the numbers of kids going to state custody had been down by like 56 or 57%. At the same time, all of the kids who were still going were largely from New York City. And when those kids were going, they were going to beds upstate. Eighty-eight percent of the beds were still upstate. And the system hadn't shrunk, so, that, so there was just the same number of beds, even though the number of kids who were coming into the system had greatly declined. So the cost was enormous. It was like $250,000 a kid. Um, yeah. in like 2008. At the same time, there were a ton of reports coming out and in 2006, there was a pretty damning story about a kid who died in custody who was from the South Bronx. He had been restrained mm-hmm. by two staff uh, and brought to an emergency room and then was killed. Um, and And it just sort of set off all sorts of alarm bells um, between the costs and the horrific treatment. And then DOJ started investigating conditions uh, Mm -hmm. and it just created the same kind of crisis that you're seeing at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. at that point, it became no longer really politically tenable to just sort of stand by and watch the state waste a lot of money. Um, Mayor Mm -hmm. Bloomberg and Governor Cuomo both toured empty facilities that were fully staffed um, soon after their coming into office and 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 there was just this moment of like we can't we can't stand by and let this keep going especially when we're in a fiscal crisis mm-hmm. uh, and mayor bloomberg at that point said we're we're taking these kids home um and so that became the impetus for a planning process that started this close to home negotiation between the city and the state so in terms of what it actually is though like that close to home was really it was a bill that was negotiated to essentially have the city take custody of its kids back from the state. And the whole premise of it was we want our kids to be in their own homes and in their communities and as close to home whenever possible if they have to be placed out of the home um, at all times. And that was sort of the overarching framework for it. Um, But there are a lot of components of it that I'm happy to Get into in terms of what it actually meant to operationalize
1: that. Sure, uh, yeah. You were kind of running through the the genesis of the idea, genesis of the bill, the close to home bill. And yeah, as you mentioned, it sounds very similar to what we're looking at in Milwaukee and Wisconsin right now, in that most of the beds at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake are are filled by residents of Milwaukee County. People who are found guilty of type 1 offenses are kind of like just sent to the state um at a, at facilities that are very very far away and also like the kickstarter to you know conversations around like changing this model was tragedy in that in new york if someone died in custody and in in wisconsin it was you know kind of investigations around horrific treatment ongoing treatment of the youth there so i mean i it's i, I know you you've said this but it it's it's striking how similar of a story at least up until this point the the new york story was mm-hmm. from the close to home legislation being passed in in the state house once it was kind of like brought to new york what, what did the early days look like of the close home model university
0: yeah so basically i mean you know when the planning was happening which you know there was a fairly intense planning period in part because folks knew that when and if the bill passed it was likely that there would be a short period in between to get everything up and running. So I'm gonna actually go back a little bit before it was actually implemented. Sure. Um, but part of the planning process was really about designing this new system and thinking through what, what it should look like. And if we're gonna design a new system, I think all the people at the table, primarily led by, um, at the time, the probation commissioner, who is Vinnie are Mm co-director of the Justice Lab, and then um, the Administration for Children's Services Commissioner, Ronald Richter, they were kind of leading this charge along with a large group of stakeholders from different agencies. But really the the sort of primary question is, what do we want this to be? Um, Mm -hmm. I think everyone around the table was in agreement that they did not want to recreate the same system that existed at the state level that they were basically trying to undo, right? They didn't necessarily wanna say, this is just a transfer of beds from the state to the city, that the facilities are gonna essentially still be youth prisons, except now they're locally operated. Um, And that, you know, we're gonna keep the numbers the same, all of that, like not, that was not the intent. Um, From the beginning, people were like, if we're doing this, we're gonna take the time to actually upend the status quo now and to really ask the questions of who belongs in custody and who doesn't. And we're gonna start with the premise that it's possible that many kids, even with the low numbers we have, still don't belong in custody and that we should be serving those kids in the community um, and doing everything we can to support them without ever having them go to this deepest end resource. And so there was a whole process around creating a decision-making grid that would be used um, by probation to kind of inform judges around how they should think about who belongs in custody and really looking at both, you know, the severity of the charge as well as kind of, you know, the, the needs of the kids and kind of, you know, articulating different combinations of things and what that could result in, whether that was placement or something else and really what it said was that for only for those highest risk kids do we need something pretty intensive like sending them away from their home and for most of these other kids we can kind of manage to do that in a way that is community-based with programming with other kinds of supports um, and that's what we should focus on. So there was that piece, and then there was separately just this whole process around what does that community-based programming look like if you're not placing a kid in a facility? And at the time, there were some of those alternatives in New York. A lot of them were like based on like family therapy models, and not to say that those were bad, but you know, kids need lots of different things, and sometimes sure. that's not enough. And I think this was an opportunity to figure out what other things kids and families wanted and to work with people and try to figure that out. So there was kind of emphasis placed on education and employment and mentoring and other types of supports uh, and a lot of like visioning or by going to different places around the country, like figuring out what people were doing and taking from that. I mean, all of this process, just to put that out there, was not just kind of like people had all these great ideas and and could do them, They they were learning from other places to take that on. And then mm-hmm. the last piece of it was really about the facilities themselves and changing that, right? Like people yeah. knew what crappy state prisons looked like and they didn't want that. And so the idea that we could do it differently, you know, was something that was somewhat novel but not impossible. And so a lot of attention was paid to finding small home-like kind of facilities that could be refurbished in a way that felt really different, old brownstones, old school buildings, like whatever they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became the basis of it. And, and the Children's Services Agency, which eventually took over close to home, contracted with various providers to actually um, fill that sort of need for beds. And you know, I will say right off the bat at the beginning, the number of beds that the city contracted for was too high. I know there's a lot of questions in Milwaukee around, you know, how many beds do we need? We need to make sure we have enough because who knows who else is going to show up. And New York had the same problems. Everyone had that same fear. At the end of the day, though, they contracted for way too many beds. And in Milwaukee's case, you all are looking at building a facility and building a facility is a lot harder to take offline than undoing a contract. Um, And so it's just something to think about, because I think people in New York would say, you know, we really over, over, uh, over procured, and we could have gone lower. And they have, you know, they've subsequently shed lots and lots of contracts. I will say just off the bat with Close to Home, when the system was being brought online, it's not like there were no problems, there were definitely Mm -hmm. sort of bumps Mm -hmm. in the road to get things going, both just the kind of you know, make sure all these different pieces fit together, the decision-making, the referrals to community-based programs, the getting the facilities online. And, and at the time, many of the providers who were brought into the mix to become residential placements were child welfare providers who maybe weren't as familiar with the juvenile justice sort of population and had to kind of really get acclimated and attuned to that. And there was a lot of training that ACS had to do to get them to that point. Um, at the very beginning of taking the system online, the non-secure facilities in particular had a pretty striking problem with um, what's called absent without leave, which is many kids were leaving the facility because it was easy to leave. And then mm-hmm. they were having to be sort of found. Um, and this just sort of spoke to, you know, not maybe not a surprising issue given that this, is, this was still relatively new for people. But I think what was surprising was in New York, people didn't necessarily see this as a challenge that then meant the entire system had to come down. They viewed it as an opportunity to like figure out what was going wrong and how to how to really problem solve and address it. And so the deputy mayor was like really on top of it and started convening people like every week, really early in the morning. and. Mm-hmm eventually they came up with a solution which is that one of the providers would um, essentially create kind of a almost a timeout facility if you will for kids who might be having the kind of behavioral problem that was leading them to want to leave or whatever and and to yeah. the extent that the yeah. providers could then sort of identify those kids and, and help refer them to that facility then they would sort of spend that time there or and then return, or you know they might serve out their time in this facility, like whatever that ended up being. But it worked, right? It was a solution yeah. that actually worked. And yeah. at the end, that whole process and you know learning helped inform when they brought online the limited secure facilities because they they were phased in, mm-hmm. um, and that mm-hmm. phasing in gave them the opportunity to kind of say, okay, we we know we don't want to repeat that going forward, and and that problem then. Was greatly lessened when those facilities came online,
1: like a couple of years later. I'm trying to see how how possible, I guess, the close to home model would be, um, or as as we see in New York under Act 185, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. part of Act 185 is you know this multi million dollar grant mm-hmm. program for specifically for building new um, mm-hmm. facilities. Uh, both, like, high risk and, and, and I guess, you know, l- lower risk, or, mm-hmm. or type 2, uh, so what Wisconsin refers to them as. And in talking to lawmakers and kind of the people involved with this issue, um, they say that, you know, as the law is written now, we can't really build the kind of, like, small scattered facilities seen in New York. And so if facilities built in Milwaukee County, I guess, kind of, like, look like, in in, in big institutions like Lincoln Hills or Copper Lake, so like dozens Mm -hmm. of beds um, Mm -hmm. kind of removed from communities, et cetera, um, does this, but they're, you know, in Milwaukee County as opposed to three or four hours away. Does that sufficiently replicate, you know, the close to home model in New York or is the neighborhood and community immersion um, integral to the model?
0: I mean, I think it's integral to the model. I would say, I think, I think the bigger issue beyond just sort of thinking about that piece is the fact that uh, at the end of the day, I think the question still remains for me about Milwaukee is, do you need as much as you think you need in terms of facility capacity? Or should there just be less emphasis placed on that and, and sort of more about this question of like, who who really even needs to be in a facility, period, right? And like, like where... Like we're starting the conversation so much right now around the facility and what that need Mm -hmm. is. And I know that's largely being driven by this bill and the way Mm -hmm. it's structured. But I feel Mm -hmm. like it sort of misses the point, which is you have this moment, like who should be in your system and why? And like, let's understand that and let's make sure we have a really good handle on what we all believe and what we want in terms of what we want to see for kids and who we think is actually like a public safety risk. And then for those kids, to the extent that that is something that might be required, you know, make sure we do that in a way that's aligned with these sort of promising practices around like doing it in a smaller home-like, more community-based way. Um, I feel like having the conversation about the facilities first Kind of doesn't do justice to what close to home was
1: to get away from facilities and, and housing youth. Um, what kinds of wraparound services or community organizations or resources are, are needed to make um, this this system work? You know, is there anything that is absolutely key like any kind of agency organization uh maybe just political will exactly what what exactly is you know fundamental and needed to make to to make this to make yeah i happen? think
0: i mean fundamentally i think you need agreement among the people who are both within the system but also ideally outside of the system to sort of say like we all believe that we are kind of pushing forward the best vision we can for kids and that we we think that it's really important to to sort of think of kids as like this promising resource and having a lot of potential and that that kind of really guides the way in which we're going to structure our system. Fundamentally, like I think it's about sort of having that same philosophical approach. And then from there, it's about kind of creating all these different processes and Programs and other things, whether that's facilities or, you know, community-based services, that kind of flow from that sort of statement of of values in many ways. Um, and I think you also fundamentally, it's important to see examples of things that you think are are promising because I think ultimately sometimes it's hard to really visualize this kind of change um, and. <laughs> you know, it can be when you're, you're in it, it's like, you're just in it. And, um, I think sometimes stepping outside of that is really important. And one of the things that I think happened in New York that, that was really valuable was, you know, when we took people to all these different programs and, or facilities where we saw, you know, a different way of how kids could be treated. Um, it just, it really changed people's, perspective in a way that I think was remarkable and could allow for a very different conversation. And I feel like that's what's needed. I think the idea that the right agency too could be really helpful. I think right now, the state level, um, it might be really important to think about the role of children and families versus the Department of Corrections. Um, You know, that's, that's a philosophical thing, right? It kind of guides how things look um, I think thinking about how the money is operated, even that Act 185 pool, if there's still an opportunity to think about whether all that money has to be focused on facilities or could we actually direct it towards the thing that we want, which is more community-based programming. Like, I think those are all questions that should be asked. Like, As much as you can align with the vision that you want, I think that's that's what's going to really help move this forward.
1: Because this is Bridge City, we asked our guests for action steps we could take to get involved in this issue today. People who are listening to this and thinking, okay, how do I get involved?
3: Well, one thing people can do is help help uh, sort of differentiate myth from fact. Uh, okay, these are all hardened criminals who are going to, you know, that, that would be the myth. Uh, who, there's nothing we can do, just lock them up, throw away the key. Uh, In politics, there is a long history in this country uh, of people getting elected by saying, I'm going to lock people up and throw away the key. And as we all know, in this country, we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than countries we call third world. Uh, And here we are, the beacon of progressive democracy. uh, And we do it incredibly expensively. Uh, And in this state, we have the highest percentage of African-Americans incarcerated of any state in the country. Uh, And nobody can tell me that doesn't have something to do uh, with the polite version would be myth versus fact, but the real version would be racism. And uh, but here we have an opportunity to do something about it. So anytime you hear somebody say this is going to make things dangerous Uh, The easy answer is unless, of course, we're basing the answer on data, Uh, years and years and years and mounds of data that says exactly the opposite. Uh, Lincoln Hill is making kids more dangerous. Kids going up there are more likely uh, to commit, to recommit when they get back.
4: What are some things that would be helpful if people want to get involved in helping us with Project Rise? It really would be trying to find out those caring adults that would join with us to make sure we get it right.
2: And there's a number of ways
4: in which they could do that. I mean, we've even talked about we want accountability. We want someone to hold us to a standard of accountability. So we talk about having a neighborhood board or a neighborhood uh, association that would help us with the different things that we'd like to establish in different communities related to justice reform. So people want to help us and keep an eye on us. We welcome that. Mm -hmm. Um, If people want to make themselves available to mentor, to read, to be tutors, to read with the children, to spend time with them. I think as
0: a starting point, folks who maybe haven't been, you know, really involved in these conversations, but are interested in sort of being part of um, changing it, I would really encourage folks to go to some of the community meetings being organized by Youth Justice Milwaukee, yeah. who I know has had a pretty active community presence. Um, mm-hmm. And I know they've done a lot of really interesting things. They, When we were there, they, they convened a big meeting, which was great. Um, I think some of the other meetings, like the um, Community Justice Council also had a pretty active community presence. And I think being able to go to those, hear what people are talking about in terms of where officials are in terms of decision making or asking questions about why they're making certain decisions. Like this is this is a good opportunity and I feel like if you want to have an active voice you got to be there to ask some of those questions. Um, And I think some of those questions should include like have if and if, if it's important it's like you know do we really need to think about this just in terms of beds? And what what have we done as a county, as a city, to really think about what would we want for young people um, in terms of community alternatives? And let's let's try to ask community members and youth and families okay. what they'd want to see.
2: One thing that really stuck out to me throughout our interviews was the need for our community to take responsibility for our young people and how it starts by bringing these facilities closer to our community where they have access to the most resources and to their family. The history of incarceration shows intentionality on the part of policymakers to remove those who have broken the law from the physical view of the law-abiding citizens, sort of removing them from our view and in turn from our thoughts. And we become distant from how our young people are being treated. Bringing them closer to home and more proximate to their resources and to their family and friends will ultimately benefit us all.
1: When discussing what is legally possible under Act 185 and how it will affect youth justice in Milwaukee going forward, it is dangerously easy to immediately start talking about facilities, how big they should be, where they should be located, who they should be designed for, etc. I myself started doing this and I'm so glad Vidya called me out on it during our interview because it really is the wrong approach. What we have here in Wisconsin is a unique moment. A moment to reimagine what we want our youth justice system to look like and act to build a system that truly does do right for our young people. Over 40 years ago, Wisconsin's idea of youth justice was to build Lincoln Hills. Now that Lincoln Hills has been deemed no longer suitable for our youth, what have we learned? What do our youth deserve over the next 40 years? The time to decide that really is right now.
2: We want to thank Chris Abelli, Mary Jo Myers, and Vidya Anathakrishnan for joining us on this episode to demonstrate how important this moment is for Wisconsin. And thank you to listening to part one of our series on the future of youth justice in Milwaukee. Look out for part two in the coming weeks and get in contact with your electeds at the state legislature now to ask what their plans for youth justice in Milwaukee will be.
1: Yeah, And as always, please rate and subscribe to the podcast from wherever you get your podcast and consider supporting us on Patreon to keep Milwaukee flooded with tangible action steps, as well as to receive some Bridge to City swag. We've got a lot of content headed your way, so stay tuned for more episodes. Follow us on social media for new episode updates and upcoming civic engagement opportunities in Milwaukee. And as always, let us know how you have helped bridge the the city.